It's 1208. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. We start off today's program like we start off every show. Three big things. Big story number one. All right. Heavy breathing reports all weekend. Oh, oh, Miller is going to be coming down with indictments. This is going to be the end of the Trump administration. Well, not, not so fast. Um, now, let me just back up as somebody who spent more than a dozen years in the U.S. Attorney's Office and who's responsible for presenting matters to grand juries on a regular basis. I will tell you this on a personal level, absent a serious illness in the family or to you. The worst thing that can probably happen to you is to see your name at the top of a federal indictment. So from the perspective of Paul Manafort, who was the Trump campaign chairman for a period of four or five weeks, this is not a very good day. And if you read through the indictment, it is difficult to be sympathetic to this guy. Um, essentially, what the indictment says is it focuses on a consulting business that he and some partners ran going back to 2010. One of their big clients was the president of the Ukraine at the time. And this is before the Ukraine started to separate from, from Russia. And what Manafort is accused of doing if you are going to do business as a U.S. citizen with a foreign government, you're supposed to register, and again, you're supposed to report various sorts of income. I, I've read the entire 31-page indictment. What Manafort is accused of doing is taking money from this foreign government, who he was providing consulting services to, not reporting it on his taxes, and laundering it through offshore bank accounts in order to hide it from federal authorities. And, and, it, and it claims that he has millions of dollars in taxable income that should have been reported that, that wasn't. That's the essence of this. It is a reporting, it is a tax sort of violation thing. And if you're Paul Manafort, it is a big deal. And if he did what he's accused of doing, well, he, he deserves everything that he gets. Now, this investigation had been going on, uh, had been run by the FBI for a number of years, apparently. So the special prosecutor sort of inherited this investigation. Interestingly, though, this has nothing to do at all with the Trump campaign. So if the whole purpose behind this special prosecutor was to look for connections, collusion involving the Trump campaign and Russia, this is, I'm, I'm sorry, I understand there's some Trump haters out there who want to hear otherwise, this is a complete and total nothing burger. Now, the, the speculation and the hope again from the Trump haters is that Manafort is in a trick box over these tax allegations over the money laundering allegations, and the, the hope is that he has some dirt on, on Donald Trump that in an effort to try to get himself out from under his problems, and these problems that are returned in the indictment today have nothing to do with the Trump campaign. But the hope is that, well, he's got some dirt on Donald Trump, and that in an effort to try to, again, dig out from his own problems, he will you know, spill the beans on Trump. That, that's, that's what the hope is. I don't know if he knows anything incriminating against now President Trump, then candidate Trump, or, or not. I, I do know that this indictment has nothing to do with the Trump campaign, and there's no evidence of collusion here. 
the more interesting, I think, development is the undercovered story of the day. And that is that one of the Trump advisors, kind of a low-level guy, but an advisor nonetheless, his name is George Papadopoulos, that the Manafort indictment is getting all the attention and all the heavy breathing stuff. But the Papadopoulos uh, guilty plea is something different. They announced today that George Papadopoulos, who, again, was sort of a low-level Trump advisor, had entered a plea of guilty to lying to federal agents about his contacts with Kremlin-connected Russians. Papadopoulos joined the Trump team in spring of 2016. This is while the campaign was going on as an energy and foreign policy expert. Um, He apparently was trying to actively set up a meeting with Russians to discuss U.S.-Russia ties during a Trump presidency. Now, that in and of itself, there might not be anything wrong with that. But in any event, apparently the FBI questioned him about this and he he lied about his his involvement he tried to you know downplay his involvement with who it was that he was meeting and things like that and he has now entered a plea of guilty apparently a couple weeks ago and has agreed to cooperate now so far all the reports are that these efforts that he undertook to try to set up a meeting with the Trump campaign actually went nowhere, were rebuffed by you know, supervisors. But nonetheless, he has admitted that he lied to the FBI when you know his name first surfaced and they first started questioning him, and he has agreed to cooperate. Now, I don't know if he has any dirt on campaign officials or not, but unlike the Manafort indictment that relates to charges unrelated to the campaign other than the fact that you might say to President Trump, why would you have a guy like this um, you know, managing your campaign in the first place? But the Manafort indictment doesn't appear to me to have anything to do with the campaign other than an effort by the special prosecutor to perhaps try to gain some leverage in the event that Manafort had dirt on Trump. On the other hand, this Papadopoulos guilty plea does involve somebody who was a part of the Trump campaign who has now acknowledged that he lied to the FBI in connection with at least his involvement in trying to set up meetings between higher-up Trump officials and the Russians, which may or may not have have been illegal. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start off. This is obviously big story number one. Right now, for people who think that there is some sort of smoking gun or that this is going to be all it takes to bring down the Trump presidency, I'm sorry. I think you are going to be extremely, extremely disappointed. Um, There doesn't appear to be anything in this Manafort indictment, which to me links Trump to any sort of illegal sort of activity at all. It's just an effort, again, to perhaps gain some leverage and to prosecute somebody who, quite frankly, if he did what he's accused of doing, avoiding taxes and structuring these things through offshore bank accounts, I've got no sympathy at all. He deserves to go to jail for a long time. But I think we're a long ways away from anything that would implicate President Trump in any sort of illegal activity. Is this, though, the smoking gun? Is this the beginning of the end for the Trump administration? I'm not seeing it. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We're back to discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1216. This is Jeff Wagner.
It's 1218. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, our text line. What do you say about Manafort's charge of conspiracy against the U.S.? Okay, good question. The, I, as a former federal prosecutor, whenever you have two or more people that are involved in a plan to do something illegal, you, you always throw in a conspiracy charge. Um, again, and because the conspiracy charge, the basis is you have to have overt acts, you know, underlying acts, and then you have to have an agreement between people. The conspiracy to against the United States is it's a fraud charge. The allegation is they conspired together. In this case, it would be Paul Manafort and Richard Gates, who was his partner. They conspired together between themselves and with others to defraud the United States, to to not pay the taxes that they were owed. They conspired to, uh, again, um, hide, to, to launder money. They conspired to hide what they allege were the illegal acts. I mean, it's not a treason charge or anything like that. It It is a conspiracy charge. They did what they did in concert with each other. So the idea that, oh, there's this conspiracy to defraud and people think it's treason, that, that's not what this is. And I'm not downplaying it because, again, you know, Paul Manafort is in a ton of trouble. He's just in a ton of trouble. And it appears like the FBI has been mounting a case for the last couple years in, involving his efforts to take millions of dollars in fees that he was generating from the Ukraine government at the time, the president of the Ukraine, and, and hide it. He had to pay, supposed to pay taxes on it. He was supposed to disclose what he was doing to the U.S., and he decided he didn't want to do that, and he became rich beyond the dreams of avarice, and now he has been caught. And I have, again, no sympathy for him. I'm just saying if people are out there thinking this is the smoking gun that brings down the Trump administration, um, no, 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 it, it's, it, it's not. Now, the fair question, again, would be uh, of the universe of people that President Trump during his campaign could have reached out for and tried to bring in for his, uh, again, his campaign manager, how do you end up with Paul Manafort? That, and that is a very, very fair question. And I guess that the, the, the issue becomes, does Manafort have some inside knowledge of some other illegal wrongdoing that was engaged in by now President Trump during the campaign or other campaign officials, and will he be willing to, it, does he have anything like that? And does he is he in a position to try to offer that in a way to, uh, again, dig himself out of the substantial legal hole that he's in? And I guess that's where you need to wait. But the idea and all this attention that this indictment is getting saying, oh, this is, you know, this is close to the Trump administration. No, it, it's it's not. It's stuff that in large cases predated his involvement with Trump. But it's a bad thing. And I'm certainly not going to defend Paul Manafort. The more interesting story to me, again, is this whole question in involving Papadopoulos, um, who he's a guy who's now entered a guilty plea to lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russia. Now, so far, all the reports are um, he was trying to, again, he was trying to reach out to Russian officials to set up a meeting with the Trump campaign. It apparently went nowhere, but when he was confronted by this, he lied to the FBI. I'm not even sure if the underlying, even if they ended up having a meeting, I'm not at all convinced that that in and of itself would be a criminal act. Matter of fact, I think most 
most lawyers that look at this say it probably wouldn't, although there's another school of thought on that. But I guess this is, to me, the more interesting thing. He's agreed to cooperate. Does he know something about the campaign? So far, all the reports are whenever he tried to peddle this story and set up a meeting, he got rebuffed by upper-level campaign people. But this, if you're trying to figure out where you want to go with this, this is – this is the more interesting, I think, of the two. He's a much smaller fish than Paul Manafort, not a big-name guy at all. But if you want to go down the conspiracy route, if you look at – go back to Watergate and you look at how Watergate unraveled, Watergate unraveled not because of the Haldemans and the Ehrlichmans, it unraveled because of the smaller level players who got squeezed. Now, I'm not suggesting that. I think it is extremely premature, but there's going to be a lot of heavy breathing today. I'm just saying, you know, be cautious about it. I've read the indictment. I don't think this Manafort indictment in and of itself is reason, again, other than the optics, which are admittedly once again bad. I don't think the 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 Manafort indictment is something that you automatically say, oh, this is the end of the Trump administration. Um, watch the Papadopoulos thing. I don't know if it would ever go to Trump, but if he's got some dirt, this might cause some other campaign dominoes to fall. Maybe. Big story number two is coming up. The inmates are offended. Should we care? Stick around. It's 1224. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1226, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. There's Wayne and Larry on the radio and the Packers game on your TV. But your phone now gives you a new view with our Packers second screen. Get instant reaction to every big moment and exclusive comments from Coach McCarthy on our second screen every game day in the Packers section of WTMJ.com. All right. I acknowledge it is a phrase I frequently use. Um, I will often say, and if you're a regular listener, you've heard me say this, the inmates are running the asylum. It is a metaphor. It is an idiom. It generally refers to the people least capable of being in control of a situation are now in control of the situation. That is what it means. It has never occurred to me that the use of the phrase, the inmates are running the asylum, means... Well, the people that you are referring to are inmates at a mental facility. All right, now this this is the backdrop of this. We all are aware and we have talked quite a bit about the NFL protests and how this has gotten out of control, and now I think it's hurting NFL ratings, and the owners don't exactly know what to do. Well, there's an owner's meeting last week, and uh, the owner of the Houston Texans, 78-year-old billionaire named Bob McNair, Apparently, at the owners' meeting, butchers this particular saying. Now, the saying is the inmates are running the asylum. He says the inmates are running the prison. Okay, that, that's what he says. Now, the phrase is inmates are running the asylum. He says it's inmates running the prison. I haven't heard that before, but he is clearly, at least in my opinion, referencing inmates running the asylum. All right, that's he is referencing this even though he kind of butchers it. The word gets out that he has said inmates running the, the prison. And the NFL players, particularly the Houston Texans, become irate. Now, let's uh, deal with the reality. Large number of players in the NFL are African-American. 
Um, there's one of the, the huge issues is the incarceration rate of African-American males. So some people interpret this to be, oh, th- this is a direct racist response because the players are predominantly black. He's talking about the inmates are running the prison. What I think he's doing, at least in my opinion, is that he's making, again, a, a reference to uh, it's the metaphor. It is the idiom. He's just he's talking about the inmates running the asylum. In this case, he says it's the inmates running the prison. But regardless, regardless, he's now being accused of, well, this is incredibly racist. This is outrageous. The NFL players, particularly Houston Texans, demanding an apology before their game uh, the other day. What, on Sunday, I think they played Seattle yesterday. Uh, all but 10 of them you know, kneel down during the national anthem. Um, McNair has now been forced to uh, uh, apologize. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I want to tell you this. Regardless of how people feel about the national anthem protests, I am so sick and tired of feigned outrage by the politically correct. Look, I understand that there is real racism in this world, but this idea that everybody is offended about everything, that is something I find offensive. My response to these NFL players who didn't like what this guy said would be Wagner's rule of life number one, life is tough, get a helmet. All right, 414-799-1620. That's big story number two. All right. Should the owner have apologized? Should the play were the players legitimately offended? Or is this just more mock outrage? It's 1235, Jeff Wagner, 620 WCMTMJ. Might we be seeing the passing of the MVP torch tomorrow night at the Bradley Center? Giannis and the Bucks go up against Russell Westbrook and the Thunder, and we'll have it here for you on WTMJ. Ted Davis will be on the air at 640 tomorrow with our Buckshots pregame coverage. Be sure to check that out. Hey, one of the questions I was getting is that, uh, you know, with going back to doing your, your regular noon to three slot, are you still going to be doing the podcast? Absolutely. Podcasts are posted on a daily basis. Check out, again, WTMJ.com. Go to the podcast page, and you can take this show with you anytime Anytime you want. All right, we're right in the middle of our three big things. This is big story number two, and it, it broke over the weekend. And, and I swear, this was one of the things that just had, has me, had me screaming at the television and the radio and the newspaper. I mean, you want to talk about a bunch of big, overpaid millionaire babies. Let me see a show of hands from everybody who's ever used the phrase, the inmates are running the asylum. I mean, it is a common phrase which is used on a regular basis. I don't think anybody who uses that ever means that in a literal sense, unless, of course, you are an administrator at a mental hospital, a mental health hospital. All right. So in this particular situation, you have the owner of the Houston Texans who is talking about, and I think he's obviously concerned last week at the owners' meetings, about how it's the the NFL players, um, they're the owners, but it's the NFL players who are kind of driving this dialogue and forcing them to make decisions. And he says, well, I'm concerned that the inmates are running the prison. Now, he he butchers the metaphor, okay? But whether he's referring to crazy people running an asylum or convicted people running a prison, he's not being literal. He is using the term as a figure of speech, as most people do. But yet you have these NFL players who seize on this, and then there's the allegations of racism. And then, of course, this gets picked up by the media and ends up taking on a life of its own. 
you just reach a certain point where you want to say just enough is enough. Jeff and Fox Point texts, I think these players with the emotional intelligences of 12-year-olds just want attention. The majority of the NFL is not getting any more of my time because of these divisive ploys. That is precisely, you know, what is going on on here um i have another text though who would want to work for someone who calls them an inmate well okay he wasn't calling them inmates i mean see this is the thing and and this is welcome to the world in 2017 where there's no such use of idioms there's no such use of metaphors everybody takes stuff literally oh this is it they take stuff literally if it helps serve whatever the particular agenda it is that they are advancing. And so in this case, you have these millionaire crybaby players. Oh, we're offended. This is racist. Look, I don't know Bob McNair, but as somebody, and I think most of us who have used that expression from time to time, nobody ever means it to be a literal expression. So once again, big story number two, for all the crybaby multimillionaire NFL players who are upset with the fact that this guy used the metaphor, I remind them of Wagner's rule of life number one life is tough get a helmet big story number three is coming up if you are a parking checker in milwaukee you are taking your life in your hands what do we need to do about it stick around it's twelve thirty-nine. this is jeff wagner it's twelve forty-two. jeff wagner 620 wtmj so very glad to have you with us how does the county executive see his budget plan most impacting county residents and county employees Find out when Chris Abley joins John and Melissa live in the studio 350 this afternoon during Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is the press secretary for the president, she's she's holding uh, her daily press availability, and I know she's being asked some questions about the Manafort indictment. Let's dip in for just a moment to see what she's uh, saying. As far as we can tell, they, we know that they haven't spoken in several months. The last uh, known conversation was back all the way to February. And as, as far as anything beyond that, uh, with Paul, I'm not sure of any other contact. Uh, I know that there was some initial contact uh, after the president was sworn in uh, with him at meetings here at the White House, but nothing uh, directly with the president. Deborah? Yeah, um, uh, thank you, Sarah. On March 31, according to the affidavit by Mr. Papadopoulos, he attended a foreign policy meeting. The president was there. He said that he talked about how he, that Russia wanted to talk to the president. What did the president think when he said he wanted to arrange a meeting between Trump and Putin? And how did other people in the campaign react to that? Uh, I'm not sure that the, the president uh, recalls specific details of the meeting. Again, it was a uh, brief meeting that took place quite some time ago. It was the one time that group ever met. Uh, and beyond that, I really don't have anything to add. John Gizzi. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, as you mentioned, Mr. Manafort, Mr. Gates were um, named in this for uh, things not having anything to do with the campaign, but with alleged money laundering regarding other business. Now, under those circumstances, would the president consider or rule out pardoning either of them? I haven't had any conversations with him about that. I think we should let the process play through before we start uh, looking at those steps. Papadopoulos at this time was working, was referring to Jeff Sessions at the time, who was overseeing Trump's foreign policy advisory committee. What does this mean for Jeff Sessions? Uh, I, again, uh, somebody on a volunteer committee, I'm not sure how that would impact the Attorney General directly. Um, can you say, given what we have learned over the last few hours, can you say when the President was first aware 
that Russia was behind the hacking and, and was in the possession of emails, what they considered to be damaging emails about the Clinton campaign that they were trying to get to uh, to the Trump campaign. When was he first aware of that? I'm, I'm not sure of the specific date of when that took place. So I'd have to look at it back. Sarah, yeah. uh, does the president regret having had having hired Paul Manafort to be his campaign manager? And is he and the rest of the White House concerned that this issue will distract from tax reform and the other domestic policy and foreign policy. We're not worried about it distracting because it doesn't have anything to do with us because this is something that is action that took place uh, outside of the campaign or campaign activity. And as far as whether he regrets having hired him for to be campaign manager? I didn't ask him that question specifically. Sure. Uh, how can you uh, describe uh, Mr. Papadopoulos as having a limited role when there's a, there's a photograph of Mr. Papadopoulos sitting at a table with uh, the uh, candidate has Trump thousands of photographs with meeting. millions of people. And, so uh, he was also cited by then candidate Trump in a meeting with the Washington Post as to who his uh, top foreign policy advisors are. Uh, that seems to fight against what you're saying. And also, how how is it not collusion? When George Papadopoulos is in contact with various people who are promising dirt on Hillary Clinton, uh, a series of events that closely mirrors what occurred with the president's own son. This individual was on a... In, in pursuit of information that was damaging about the Clintons. How is all of that not collusion? Look, uh, this individual was the member of a volunteer advisory council that met one time over the course of a year. Uh, and he was part of a list that was read out in the Washington Post. I'd hardly call that some sort of uh, regular advisor or, as you want to you know, push, that he's uh, like a senior member of the staff. It's, uh, he was not paid by the campaign. He was a volunteer on a, again, a council that met once. He was pursuing information think, from the uh, Russians. Again, he was a volunteer. I think it's something you need to ask him. I'm not here to speak on behalf of the you know thousands of people that may have volunteered on the campaign. I believe it or not, I have a question on this, but also on tax reform. Um, the president has called on Congress to investigate Hillary Clinton. Is he confident that they will do that? Okay, we'll continue to monitor that. I think you get a, a general sense. Um, the, the White House response is that these allegations against Paul Manafort and others um, predate his involvement with the campaign, and you know we're, we're we're moving forward. And I think that's accurate. As I was saying earlier in the hour, the I guess to the extent there is a concern, if you're a Trump supporter, that would be that does Manafort have dirt on Donald Trump, and would he? That's which is of course a, a big question. I mean, I don't know that one way or the other. But would these very significant charges that he's facing cause him to want to try to work his way out and leverage that by, by giving up that information on the president, assuming that he has that information? That's number one. Um, again, this George Papadopoulos thing is a little bit more interesting because he was somebody who was, as she's describing, you know, a volunteer advisor for the campaign who was apparently reaching out to the Russians, trying to set up some sort of meeting. It doesn't appear to have ever gone anywhere, but he lied to the FBI about his involvement with that. He's now entered a guilty plea and said he's cooperating. So that, that's where they were kind of going with the collusion. Again, so far, there doesn't appear to be anything linking any higher-ups to the campaign to these types of things, but uh, time will tell. All right, big story number three. Now, I was off for a couple days. This story, I believe, broke Friday afternoon, but it really did. It caught my attention. And it indicates, once again, 
what's going on in the mean streets of Milwaukee. Now, if you are a regular listener of this program, you know that I have had issues all along for years and years with the overly aggressive tactics of the, the in this case, it's the Department of Public Works that, that run that run the parking checker program. Now, this isn't about individual parking checkers. It is about the administration, and it's it's Tom Barrett's administration that relies on parking revenue as a budget enhancement. And as a result of that, you have you have pressure that is brought on the parking checkers. Now, if you say that they've got a quota, that the the people at DPW say, well, there's no quota. If you talk to individual parking checkers. They will say, well, they might not ever use the word quota, but if you are in a certain area of downtown and you do not write enough tickets, be prepared to be sent to less desirable areas of downtown. And because there, there might not be a quota per se, but there are different expectations. And a result, as a result of this, what happens is you have what I consider to be a very user-unfriendly situation. You know, we've had examples over the years, for example, where, okay, you you have massive rainstorms um, where it's really kind of like not safe to go outside. The parking checkers go out and and they start writing tickets, you know, right and and left. You know, we've had those stories. You've had the stories where the parking checkers will set up around some of the high um, traffic areas in downtown Milwaukee, you know, like the lunch spots where you can't, where the parking is limited to like an hour and you can't get in and out in an hour, and they'll sit there and they'll wait for the meters to hit zero, and then you know they'll write the ticket even though somebody's running out to put more money in the meter, those types of situations. And, and, and what happens is, I, I just think, yes, you, you get the 30 bucks or the 35 bucks from the ticket, but what happens is you turn people off from coming into those areas because somebody says, hey, now I'm not going to go downtown and I'm not going to park across from this restaurant um, and, and get a $30 ticket when I could go, I don't know, to a restaurant in the suburbs. I can pull in the parking lot and I, I can park for free and, and have my meal. I understand that there is an issue where you can't allow somebody to just camp all day at a parking space. I get that. But this idea that here we're going to take unreasonable positions and we're going to chicken hawk these things, that, that's always been what has bothered me. But it's been a beef that I've had with the administration that puts pressure on the parking checkers to not exercise any degree of common sense at all. And it's gotten worse since the responsibility for the parking checkers was taken away from the police department and now is under DPW. So late last week, the story breaks that three Three parking checkers were threatened and shot at by people, um, again, in two related um, injuries. First occurred um, 3 a.m. last Wednesday morning on the city's south side. A worker was issuing a citation when a person fired a shot over her head. The parking checker was threatened when she first went to the car. The guy told her, never ticket my vehicle. Um Bob Donovan, who's one of the voices of common sense in this community, says it was chilling. 25-year-old guy was arrested. The day before that, two parking workers saw an attempted burglary shortly before 5 a.m. on South 13th Street. They began to follow the suspects who were leaving in a vehicle. One of the suspects fired shots from his car towards the workers. Milwaukee police are now investigating and searching for the subjects. 
Um, and again, this all comes on the heels of the horrible story a number of months ago where you had the building inspector who was sitting in his car and he was fatally shot during an attempted carjacking. Bottom line of all this is these aldermen who are expressing concerns about the level of violence in the city, they are absolutely 100% correct. They are 100% correct. You have a city where violence is getting out of control. It is being directed at women who decide they want to put groceries in their car and they have the audacity to go shopping by themselves. Young people, older people, um, white people, black people, Hispanic people. This is a huge problem. And until Tom Barrett and until the police chief and until people wake up to this, elected officials and otherwise, and until we begin to say enough is enough and it starts with the police, but then it goes to the court system. And until we start locking up these dangerous people, things are going to get worse before they get better. It's 1253. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 12.56, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Gru, who is producing the show today and always. Did you happen to see the morning newspaper? You did not see the morning newspaper. When's the last time you actually looked at a newspaper? To be honest, uh, last spring before you graduated. So you have not physically looked at a newspaper for uh, several months. And my, my guess is you do not intend to look at a newspaper moving forward unless, you know... You're sitting in the barber's chair, or you're waiting for your oil to be changed or something, maybe, right? Right, okay, so, right, the the print edition of the newspaper holds no fascination for you at all. Yet, nevertheless, you do check, you know, for for news. You keep yourself available, right? Okay, well, the the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel today finally did something that I think they have been trying to do for for years, and that is, um, I don't know how many of us still get the hard copies but today, I finally have said enough is enough um, because I, I, I do get hard copies developed. If you look at the hard copy of the Journal Sentinel today, there, there's literally, okay, figuratively, there's nothing in it. You look at the front page, the, the headline, okay, there's three stories on the front page. And it really, it's like newspapers for dummies. There's a giant picture. The, the top quarter of the page has no information at all other than trying to direct people to go to an, an old story in the green sheet. Um, the front page has three stories. It, they, they've gone to the, the local newspaper has gone to the USA style print and spacing. Big pictures, almost no stories. There's almost no content to this. Now, I, I understand, I think, what newspapers have been doing for years and years. It costs a ton of money to print the hard copies of, of the paper. And what I think they've been trying to encourage people, particularly younger people like Rue, to do is to, to subscribe you know, through the digital thing. But, but there's been guys like me who've been holding on. I, I, there's nothing in it. And, and now I think they've changed the design of it to the point that you kind of look through this, and unless you're a coupon clipper, and I'm really not, that th- there is like no reason to have a physical hard copy of, of the paper. Now, that's not to say that, I, that there's not valuable information that's in it, and that's not to say that, you know, I, I wouldn't continue an online subscription, which I certainly would. But I, I just I was reading this this morning, and I said, okay, th- th- this is just, th- this is it. Why, why bother? I mean, why bother having, and I, I love my newspaper. 
newspaper delivery guy, and you know, once I move, I'm going to miss him. But you know, why bother having somebody have to go out and deliver these few pages that now have almost no content on them? Now, I'm not saying you know don't don't get the online subscriptions, which are a lot cheaper. But this is the future of newspapers. There's just nothing in them anymore. So, you know, maybe if you're sitting at the barber shop, okay, that that's fine. You need to kill a couple minutes, but only a couple minutes because there's not enough in the print edition to occupy your time beyond that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, lots of great stuff, including a controversy involving the guy who wants to be the next Supreme Court justice. Stick around. It's 1259. It's 108. This is Jeff Wagner. Summerfest. This comes courtesy of Eric Bilstadt announcing that the uh, Rock and Soul run, and Eric, this is something that they it they, they've done it for the last seven years. It was mm-hmm. a fundraiser. It was a half marathon or a quarter marathon. Um, and this is the one where they ran over the Hone Bridge, and um, it, it raised money for I think last year for like Boys and Girls Club. Um, Summerfest announcing that they're they're going to discontinue this, and they're. Um, I think they're they're saying okay we're taking a broad look at, at other events and charitable involvement and we're, we're we're thinking maybe we can do stuff that might raise more money or whatever. Boy, these running events taking a hit recently. The Milwaukee Marathon. Who knows if that's going to come back? Now we have the Rock and Soul Run finished. Right. Yeah, you know the, the thing I always whenever I talk about the Rock and Soul Run, I, you remember there was the year it was really really hot. Yeah. And. Oh, yeah. There was a controversy involving enough water stations, mm-hmm. and, and I will never forget this because back in the day when I was doing TV on a regular basis, one of my one of my partners and one of my contributors was a um, uh, a, a wonderful woman named Katie Klein, and she ran yeah. in this, and, and she did a blog posting apparently because again there was a controversy, there wasn't enough water, there were, and and her blog posting I can't say it on the radio, but it, it got all sorts of attention. It was. Who do I have to blank to get a drink of water? <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was so whenever I think of that rock and soul run, and I, I just, I keep thinking, okay, that's, I, I just kind of remember that out there. But yeah, and this isn't, it, it's not a, a step back from charitable efforts for Summerfest. It's just that, you know, as frequently happens, you, you start to always look at events and assess them and say, okay, well, just because we've done, sometimes things just have a, a good run. And, um, you know, after X number of years, maybe it's time. And, you know, we were talking about this, Eric, last week with the whole thing with the, the South Shore Frolics, you know, yeah, disappearing. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Bayview Lions Club, which puts that on, was saying, okay, we've done this for years and years, but it's our big fundraising thing, and we've lost money for three of the last four years, so we're going to take a hiatus and kind of reassess. Um, you know, the, these different charitable things, I'm sure Summerfest is just saying, okay, well, are there ways that we can meet our charitable desires, and can we do it in a more efficient way? And will it really be missed? I know there are a lot of people that enjoyed running across the home, but this isn't a, a you know decades-long tradition. It's something right. they just started a few years ago, so... Exactly, but you're right. The whole Milwaukee Marathon, which yeah, is, we had that the, issue too, yeah. Which is, of course, the marathon that, that I I swear that's just another one. I do not understand how, if a marathon's supposed to be 26.2 miles, how for two years in a row. You, you can't measure 26.2. We, we sent somebody to the moon back in the 1960s, <laughs> but we can't measure 26.2 miles in 2017 or 2016. There is that issue there. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, the Rock and Soul Run discontinued after seven years. And again, the Summerfest, Milwaukee World Festival, they're, they're not, this isn't a, it's not a backing away from charitable efforts. It's just, I think, kind of always the, the reassessment, you know, what are we doing what our resources are involved, and are there perhaps better ways that we can accomplish what our goals are? All right. 
to get you in the mood for 2018 and the off-year elections um, in November, there is a statewide race in April. Um, There will be a vacancy on the state Supreme Court. Um, The state Supreme Court justices serve for 10-year terms. Um, Michael Gableman, who was elected 10 years ago, has announced that he's not running again. He's supposedly in line for a position in the Trump administration. But that that will then be an open seat, so he's not running. There are three candidates who are running for the seat. One is a big, big, big lefty Madison attorney named Tim Burns, who, in my opinion, is kind of kooky. Um, and and he, his whole campaign is, I, I want to I bring, this is my interpretation of what he's saying, I want to bring politics to this. I, we need a left-wing voice on, on this court. Other candidates running is a Milwaukee County Circuit judge. Do I need to say more? A Milwaukee County Circuit judge named Rebecca Dillette. And then there is the conservative candidate who is running. Um, his name is Michael Schrenick. I don't know him personally. He's got a really interesting backstory. He, he's currently on the bench. He's a circuit judge out in Sauk County. Um, has a real interesting background as, as far as working in government administration or something. Got out of UW-Madison in 1990 with a degree in mathematics. Worked in the private sector, not as an attorney, um, for about 15 or 16 years. Went to law school later on in life. I think he went to UW Law School in 2006. And I, I've always had a lot of respect for people who do that. Um, I just... I always wondered if if I had taken a break and and gone into the real world and started making money, would I've ever had the opportunity? Would I ever would I ever really gone back and and got my law degree? So for the non traditional students, the people that go back after being out in the real world for ten or fifteen years, I, I, I give them a lot of credit. Anyhow, went to UW Law School, graduated, worked at a, a big law firm, um, the headquarters based out of Milwaukee, did administrative law, things like that. Was appointed to the bench in two thousand. 15 now he's a Sauk County Circuit judge he is the conservative of the these three that is running and of course for the state Supreme Court job and of course you have the left in Wisconsin that is is out to get him I mean they the, the fact that you've got right now a, a five judge five of the seven judges are conservative on the state Supreme Court that just it drives the left absolutely crazy and you know there's going to be a lot of resources which were thrown into this plus you know that there's a lot of opposition research going on so anyhow here here's the deal now this judge Michael um, Schrenick he graduated like I say from UW Madison in 1990 with a degree in uh, mathematics uh, here's the report that's coming out today, and this was a story that was leaked again by some of these liberal advocacy forms, uh, some of these liberal advocacy groups. When he was in college, he apparently took part in an anti-abortion protest outside a Madison abortion clinic. Um, during the protest, he was arrested and ticketed for trespassing and obstructing officers twice in 1989 while he participated in large protests at a Madison abortion clinic. Now, if, if you you know 
go back in, in the time machine, you will remember that there was a time in this state and in this country where you used to have large-scale protests outside abortion clinics. That has largely gone away. Apparently, okay, but he was ticketed for uh, obstructing um, and for trespassing. He reached plea deals that dropped the obstructing citations and required him to perform community service for the trespassing um, for the trespassing charges. Apparently, the facts of this in April of 1989, he and dozens of other protesters calling themselves rescue workers blocked access to the Bread and Roses Women Medical Center in Madison, which has since closed. Like many of others, he at first refused to give his name and had to be booked as John Doe until he identified himself. And then two months later, in June of 1989, he and dozens of others again prevented people from getting into the abortion clinic. He was one of 42 people who was arrested that day. Um, And what they did is apparently they required themselves, just like you have all these protesters now who stage the sit-ins where they go in and they sit down and they require the officers to come in and drag them out. Apparently that's what he uh, that's what he did. Both cases ticketed for trespassing and obstructing officers. Um, and again, you know, he, he said his statement, he said he understood at the time he would likely have to pay a price for participating in the protests. Um, he said, OK, so this is, you know, what what ended up happening? This is this is what we did. Um, let's see. The liberal, the very liberal group, one Wisconsin now questioned whether he could remain impartial on abortion cases. He's an extremist whose political views are far beyond the mainstream on women's health care, etc., etc. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, nowadays, you know, if you're one of those people who go in and you stage a protest for, you know, involving against Act 10 or Trump or you show up at Paul Ryan's office or you show up at Ron Johnson's office and you stage these sit-ins and you have to be hauled out, you are viewed as a hero. So now the question is, here you have a guy who is on the bench now, wants to be on the state Supreme Court, engaged in some of these protests back in 1989 when I assume he was about about 18 or 19, maybe 20 years old, in that ballpark, maybe 21 years old, but a college student. If you look at his photo from the time, it looks like he was about 15. But, okay, this happened going on 30 years ago, and now it is being raised by a liberal advocacy group as a campaign issue. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I don't know about you, but I'm not buying it. I mean, I am not buying it. There is no way I would not vote for, in this case, a conservative justice because three decades ago he participated in a protest outside an abortion clinic. All right, should this be disqualifying? Will this hurt him? I actually think it might help him. 414-799-1620. How big a deal is this? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 119. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 121, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We spend billions on Halloween, so what's a fun, cheap way to spend the holiday with your family? Gene Miller gets tips from a local expert, 621 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. If you're just tuning in, next April, there is going to be a very, very contested 
race to choose the next Supreme Court justice on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Right now, five conservatives, two liberals. The liberals in the state see this as an outstanding opportunity to pick up a seat, and they're going to be spending a ton of money to do it. There's three candidates. One is a guy named Tim Burns, who is a Madison lawyer, who, at least in my opinion, is completely and totally unqualified for this position. Second is a Milwaukee County Circuit Judge named Rebecca Dillette. We'll be talking more about her record over the course of the next couple months. But she's a Milwaukee County Circuit Court Judge, need I say more. And then you have the conservative candidate. His name is Michael uh, Schrenick. He was appointed. He's a Sauk County Judge. Real interesting background. Went to law school later in life. But, but he is the conservative candidate. All right, liberal action group circulating this huge story today. Apparently, when he was 18 or 19 or 20 or 21, he was at UW-Madison, 1989. He was arrested on two occasions while demonstrating at an abortion clinic in Madison. He was arrested. He was cited. The obstructing an officer charge was was dismissed. Um, He agreed to do some community service on a trespassing thing. All right, now you've got the liberals saying, oh, this is disqualifying. It's terrible. 414-799-1620. I don't buy that. Jeffrey on the north side. Jeffrey, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Real well, thank you, sir. Okay, should this disqualify the guy? He's part of an abortion protest, no violence or anything. He just gets hauled off 30 years ago or 28 years ago. Should this disqualify him from the state Supreme Court? No, no, I, I don't think so. And I think one of the reasons... That I, I, I think it, when you had said going back during that time, it was a, a very volatile and very divisive. You're not going to get anybody getting any tickets now for trespassing or obstructing. Um, I think that that was settled um, in, in, in a court case as well. Mm-hmm. That these people getting all these tickets for their protesting. But I can't recall since Roe versus Wade was enacted that any court case for abortion has changed before a judge. So why, if we have no president, why are we so concerned that there's going to be a court case where a judge has to make a decision well, on Well, I mean, uh, well, but the truth is, Jeffrey, I mean, I'm, and here, here's, the, here's the thing, and this is what I think distinguishes, in my mind, conservative jurists from liberal jurists. Now, I mean, there, there are cases that get challenged all the time, right? Roe versus Wade established that there is a constitutional right to an abortion. But the question is, how far does that go? Should 13-year-old girls be able to have abortions without consulting their parents? I mean, there, there, are, there are issues. But to me, the, the question isn't, does somebody hold personal views? Everybody that comes to the bench holds personal views. All three of these candidates have personal views on different things. The question is, can you apply the law? And this is where I have a beef. A lot of times, particularly with the liberal judges, what they decide is that they are going to allow their personal views to override what the law says, whether it's court case law and precedent or whether it's the law as enacted by a legislator. I want judicial, I want judicial conservatives. By that I mean I want people who are willing to follow the law and precedent. That's the issue, and actually, that's what he says. He says, "Yeah, okay, I, I'm, I'm pro-life. Yeah, I, I did these things 30 years ago because I, I feel very strongly about this issue. I'm not embarrassed by it. I, I mean, this is—I I felt very strongly. This was something that was important to me. I was willing to accept the consequences. Now, the, the question then is, okay, because you have this strong pro-life feeling, does that 
mean that you're not going to be able to follow law? He says, absolutely not. I mean, that's and that's all I want to hear out of somebody. I would like to see those other candidates ask the same question, saying, okay, you know, if you get, for example, a legislature that, you know, passes a law that is somewhat restrictive on someone's right to get an abortion, are you going to toss that out? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Gary in Sussex. Gary, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, Back in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, I was part of the Operation Rescue. And I've been at these uh, abortion clinics hundreds of times. I've been arrested and released. These are nothing but municipal fines. And and if I was going to be a judge someday or or whatever, Mm -hmm. you got to follow the law. I, Mm -hmm. my law was, God's law, and I was there protecting these babies from being killed. So I put my life down for them. And in most cases, we shut the clinics down, and they could not have these abortions. And and uh, the good side about this, we, we rescued 135 babies that were put into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, foster homes or adopted out or, or whatever. But as, as far as uh, the law, if, you, if I was going to be a judge, no, I'd still follow the law. Well, right, know right, what, exactly. I know what my heart is. You're right, exactly. And, and that happens That happens all the time. Okay, do we have breaking news, Belinda Babinick? We sure do. Ex-Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort and his business associate Rick Gates have pleaded not guilty to all of their charges. We're going to get the latest coming up at 1.30 from CBS News. Okay, um, let's take one more call. Matt in Burlington. Matt, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Okay, should this be disqualifying for this guy? Oh, absolutely not. No, I hold it a different view than you, but I think the more interesting question is that the type of protest, and I'd like to maybe compare this to the NFL players as far as respecting the law as your previous caller just alluded to. And I guess I, would, I guess what, what's the larger point with the NFL players? Well, the larger point is well, which one follow the law? So the NFL players, which have largely been condemned by a lot of people, and that's their opinion, have been blasted, and they weren't arrested or issued any municipal ordinances, anything. They, they well, no, uh, uh, okay, I get your point, Matt. I guess I, guess I, w- I would say though that the people. I think it's perfectly fair to condemn the the NFL players to criticize the nature of the the protest. But would would that necessarily be disqualifying if 30 years from now somebody wants to run for office? No. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with the news. It's 128. It's 136. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I swear. Oh, by the way, the the Manafort pleading not guilty, that's a routine thing. But what happens is after you're charged... You appear in the court in what is called an arraignment. At the arraignment, what happens is uh, bail is typically set. You're, you receive formal notification of what the charges are against you. A copy of the indictment is delivered to you. They set bail. Um, and then what they typically do is this, at the arraignment, they'll, they'll set trial dates, at least preliminary trial dates. But every arraignment I handled, and I would say I probably handled – 500 if I handled one the, the, the person enters not guilt a not guilty plea it's what starts the thing so the fact that you know they enter a not guilty plea to this doesn't mean that there might not be a plea somewhere down the line it's just kind of the process it's the initial appearance and things start going so uh, again the fact that they pled not guilty does doesn't necessarily mean anything at this point in time everybody pleads not guilty 
or almost everybody pleads not guilty at their arraignment unless there's been a plea agreement that's been reached uh, beforehand. So uh, the, the heavy breathing with the Manafort stuff, and I understand that that's going to be the driving story today, but, but like I say, this one, I don't know that this is going to get very close to the president unless Manafort has some smoking gun information that he wants to try to leverage as a way of trying to get out from under his problem. All right. This is another matter of fact, I, I'm Gru who's producing the show today. I, you know, I'm, 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 up, I'm up on Twitter and, you know, I, I try to do I, I try to send out five or six different tweets a, a day. Sometimes I'm better than others, but you can follow me. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 and you can find out some of the things I'm thinking, even when I'm not on the air, because this next story so motivated me. It took me to Twitter on Friday as I'm in the process of shuffling stuff from one house to another or, or whatever. Um, now, Gru, are, are you uh, okay? We, we've already established today earlier that you you don't read the hard copies of the newspapers. Okay, uh, a cereal? Are you a cereal guy? You like cereal? No, no, sure. Okay, all right. Is there a special type of cereal that you like? Not really. Are you a corn pops guy? Ever had corn pops? No, me neither. I, I am not a corn pops guy. So I, you know, I now Frosted Flakes, on the other hand, I could go Frosted Flakes, Cheerios. Those are the two things I have, Cheerios or Frosted Flakes. But I, I'm not a Corn Pops guy, okay? Um, but, but some people are. This is one of these stories that just motivated me, again, to, to go to at Jeff Wagner 620 and, and send out a tweet the other day. It makes my head want to explode. Do we really need to view everything in this world through the prism of racism. Now, here's the story about corn pops. Corn pops, I haven't had corn pops probably in 45 years, maybe 50 years. I I just so, but they've they've been around forever. Kellogg's makes corn pops. And what they are is they're just little round balls of corn or whatever with sugar. Okay, that, I I just, they're not my, my choice. All right. I can't even believe that this has become this story. So Corn Pops comes out with a, a box, and they have a drawing, a drawing on the front of the box. It's an illustration, and what they do is they have a bunch of little characters, Corn Pop characters with eyes and faces and feet, who are running through like a supermarket or a shopping mall. Okay, so that's there there's fifty or sixty of these characters on the front of the box. We are talking did I mention we're talking about a drawing of corn pops. All right, one of the characters in the center of the drawing, uh, and all the corn pop characters except one are are yellow. Um there's one kind of mashed in the center of the drawing, and I've got a clink on this if you follow me on Twitter, you, you can see this, where the, the character, the corn pop, appears to have browner skin than the other corn pops. I swear I'm not making this up. All right, so you got these corn pops, they're frolicking, they're doing all these things. The one corn pop that appears to have browner skin is wearing what appears to me to be a blue baseball cap, a blue sweater, and appears to be pushing a, uh, a, a, a buffer. You know, he's like buffing the, the mall floors. So you got all these characters, these corn pops. Did I mention these are illustrations of corn pops? All right, they're all running around and frolicking and doing things. And then kind of in the middle, there's the, this one where the complexion is a little bit darker than the other corn pops. 
and the guy's like looks like he's a janitor. Okay, so what you have is there's this character who writes a comic book, novelist Saladin Ahmad, looking at the back of the Corn Pop cereal box. He sees this, and he describes this as a jarring detail. All right, he spots the lone non-yellow Corn Pop. The character looked as if it had brown skin. It also happened to be the only Corn Pop dressed in blue and appeared to be buffing the mall's floors. He tweets to Kellogg's, going, he's outraged. Literally, the only brown corn pop on the whole cereal box is a janitor. Oh, my gosh. When you see your kids staring at this over breakfast and realize millions of other kids are doing the same thing, can you imagine the outrage? And Kellogg's, instead of just saying, really, this is what you have time to do, Kellogg's has now issued an apology for this brown corn pop who is pushing the buffer on the mall floor, saying Kellogg is committed to diversity and inclusion. We did not intend to offend. We apologize. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I really don't care if Kellogg wants to apologize for this, and I don't really care, I guess, if somebody gets their nose bent out of shape because they're looking at the different corn pops and they see that one is browner than the rest, and the brownest one is the one that's pushing the floor buffer. But really, have we completely, has the whole idea of political correctness completely and totally jumped the shark, where given all the different legitimate issues that we have to do when it comes to race relations, that you've now got somebody who's got nothing better to do with his time than to be offended because one of the corn pop characters on the back of the box has browner skin than the others and is pushing a buffer. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we have to view everything through the prism of racism? Or is this just an example of somebody who, politically correct, perpetually offended, looking for something to bother them? Should Kellogg have apologized or should they just have ignored this? Is this something that we really should be getting bent out of shape over? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. Corn Pops. Seriously, it's 144. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 146. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. What's the formula for the Packers to win without Aaron Rodgers? Wayne Larrabee dives into the topic and gives you part two of his conversation with longtime Journal Sentinel beat writer Tom Silverstein in his play-by-play podcast presented by your local Chevy dealer. It's up now at WTMJ.com and on the WTMJ mobile app. Hey, when you're there, check out. We podcast the, the fact that, you know, we're now doing back to doing noon to three where I want to be. Um, we, we're going to still podcast the show every day. You can check it out. And if you can't hear all three hours, you can listen to that on your own schedule as well. All right, I, I swear, this just these are the stories that make my head explode. I freely understand that there is real racism in this world, and I think when you see that real racism, it needs to be commented on and it needs to be condemned. But really, 
If you're just tuning in, corn pops. I don't even like the things. They, they have, the, on the back of the corn pops box, they have an illustration. It's a drawing. It's got like 50 little corn pops with faces and eyes and feet, and they're all running around doing different things in a mall. There's one of the corn pops that is browner than the others, and that corn pop, that browner corn pop, is pushing a buffer, like, you know, cleaning up, like acting like a janitor. All right, you have this guy who writes comic books, gets all offended by this, says, this is terrible. Can you imagine? You're going to have millions of kids looking at the back of this, and what sort of message does it send? Really? 414-799-1620. I think it sends more of a message that you have some idiot who decides to look at this and end up being offended about all this. And then, of course, Kellogg's want this whole thing to go away. So rather than saying, are you out of your mind? Oh, we apologize. We're so sorry about this. Derek and Brown Deer. Derek, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I don't know if you remember, I think it was early spring or summer, you had done a similar report on a swimming pool, community pool sign, you know, laying out the rules, and there happened to be dark-skinned kids that were getting yelled at for doing what was bad. If this is the same exact thing, and you have people looking at it, looking for a problem, they can't just look at it for the content in which it's showing, and, and walk away with, just saying, like, oh, look at the picture. No, they have to look at it and break it down and saying this this person who made this is is trying to make a point and racist remarks. It, I, I don't I don't know what else we can do in this world anymore without you know offending somebody. Well, right, and again, because like I say, what, what I think is so troubling. What is the larger issue here? Is that there is real racism, and, and you need to condemn it. But if you've got these people that are are again waking up every day trying to find something in these obscure sort of things and then demanding apologies, I I think it diminishes the real examples of racism that are out there because it's tough to take people seriously if this is what they're getting worked up over. I agree, and I I don't know what else you can do to to not offend any. I mean, there's always going to be offense in this world, but the true meaning of it is what it comes down to, and I, I don't see any offense here. I don't think somebody actually drew this up and they're like, nobody's going to notice. Well, well, exactly, right. Thank, right. I, my, my, guess, yeah, it, right my, my guess is, now, there's some theories that, okay, what happened was that this was, I don't know, they were trying to show a shadow because this was a corn pop that had the... I can't even believe I'm saying this. This is a corn pop that, you know, had the, the hat on its head, so it was a little bit of shadow. Who knows? But, I mean, seriously, you, you there is actually somebody that's going to look at... 50 of these different drawings of corn pops and end up getting worked up, you know, about this. Let's see, Mitch writes, it's not like the corn pop was wearing saggy pants and attempting to carjack someone. You know, get get over it, right? Actually, the, the corn pop had a job. You know, the corn pop was the one, this one particular corn pop was the only one out of all of them that was actually um working. Let's see. If a microaggression occurs in society and there are no parents there to hear it, um, does it affect the children? I don't think so. Yeah, really, really. I mean, I think that's interesting. The guy that complains about this, who, again, writes comic books, the guy who complains about this says, I just think that there's going to be millions of kids that are going to be looking at the back of this Corn Pops box and, and imagine what sort of message it sends because they're going to see the darker Corn Pop is actually you know, pushing a broom or whatever. Really? I mean, I, I think the millions of kids are going to look at it and say, hey, you know, is there a prize inside here? Or, oh, look at those are cute. Look at all those corn pops playing there. I, I think it's only the adults, the adults that, um, you know, are the ones that are offended. Christine, all right. Now, see, here's if you really want to be offended. Here's it. Christine says, 
What's wrong with being a janitor or custodian? My husband has been one for years and has made a good living doing so. Yeah, why? Okay, so why are you, Mr. Comic Book Writer, why are you offended, even if it's true, that they're showing the darker-skinned corn pop, the darker-skinned corn pop being the janitor, why are you automatically assuming that that's offensive? I mean, really? There's where the true outrage is that these elitist comic book writers decide to go this route. I swear, I never thought I'd be spending a segment of the program talking about corn pops, but I never thought that there'd be somebody out there demanding that Kellogg apologize because corn pops were racist. But, of course, this is America in 2017. It's 152. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 155, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Um, Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, scheduled to join John McCure this afternoon. Um, be listening, because I, I there's one thing that I have been following over the course of the last few weeks. I, I have, I'm all in favor of tax reform. I, I think we need to make things simpler and, and easier for people to understand. I also appreciate that Congress wants to make Whatever tax reform they do, they want to make it revenue neutral. In other words, they don't want to raise they don't want to raise taxes um, in order to then lower taxes. So that they want it to all work out. Unfortunately, and this is even with a Republican administration, their idea of revenue neutral isn't trying to give tax breaks to people by again cutting spending it's here we're going to make some people pay more now you've heard this ongoing conversation i've talked about it a lot one of the things that even though president trump says it's not on the table house republicans say it is and that is eliminating your ability for upfront deductions of 401k plans which would be an absolute killer to people's retirement savings. And it's not about tax policy. It's not about economics. It's only about trying to generate revenue up front. That's it. The other thing that Congress has considered doing is eliminating your ability to deduct property taxes that you pay and state income taxes that you pay. What this would mean for a lot of people who live in a high property tax state like Wisconsin it's effectively you would lose your ability to itemize uh, taxes because if you take away what you pay in property tax um, and you take away your ability to itemize um, to include like what you pay in state income tax chances are you're probably not going to have enough to exceed the standard deduction and again for some people it'll work out well for a lot of people in Wisconsin it won't work out well the news is the guy that's writing the tax plan over the weekend said that he is going to preserve the federal income tax break for property taxes. So whenever the Republicans unveil this particular plan, theoretically, it will still allow you to deduct your property taxes. Now, I think the way I read this, they're, they're not saying that they're going to preserve your ability to deduct state income taxes, which, again, is going to be a huge blow to people who live in Wisconsin. But that's one of the questions. Whenever we talk to our congressman, you, you want to know, okay, where are you on the ability to continue to deduct, to be able to you know deduct 401Ks, get that tax deferral up front, and what about the deductibility of state income taxes? What about the ability of the deductibility of property taxes? Those are all huge because if this Republican plan, instead of cutting spending, 
goes after middle class people in Wisconsin by eliminating their ability to itemize or to get tax deferral from 401ks, it's a bad plan, period. A very bad plan, if that's included. Okay, coming up, um, the latest war on George Washington. A major league baseball protester is exposed as a dangerous liar and the crackdown on service animals. Stick around. It's 158. It's 207. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Okay. If you cannot tell today, the tone of the show has been how political correctness has me on my last nerve. I, I just I freely acknowledge that. Um, my very, very best friend was married in an Episcopal, one of the two or three oldest Episcopal churches in the country in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. It was very cool, very cool. And I have always had an appreciation for history. The next story I want to talk about comes from Alexandria, Virginia. Another, Alexandria is outside of Washington, D.C., and if you ever have an opportunity to go to Alexandria, you, you really, again, you, you, you see the history of, of this country. All right, there is a church. It is one of the two or three oldest churches in the country. It's called Christ Church. Um, Christ Church in Alexandria, Virginia, is the church that George Washington attended. George Washington actually sat there. And for, well, I I don't know... um, Probably since 1870, 1870, 1970, 2017, so for 140-plus years, the pew where George Washington sat at has had a plaque on the side of it honoring the first president of the United States. Um, in additional, in addition, um, Robert E. Lee attended this church, and there's another plaque in the church, uh, again, recognizing Robert E. Lee, you know, of course, was the the charge of the the Confederate Army, you know, during the Civil War. Robert E. Lee attended this church. So there's a plaque honoring Robert E. Lee, or at least recognizing, you know, Robert E. Lee attended this. All right, here is the story. Leaders at the church where George Washington attended have decided that the plaque honoring George Washington must be removed. They are going to take down the memorial, marking the pew where Washington sat with his family. And the reason, well, this is not acceptable to all worshipers. The plaque in our sanctuary makes some in our presence feel unsafe or unwelcome. Um, Washington, of course, was a slaveholder. Some visitors and guests who worship with us choose not to return because they receive an unintended response from the presence of these plaques. And many in our congregation feel a strong need for the church to stand clearly on the side of all are welcome, no exceptions. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You have an historical church in Alexandria, Virginia, where the first president and one of the founding fathers of this country worshipped. For the last 147 years or so, there has been a plaque recognizing the pews. This is where George Washington sat. 
George Washington worshipped here, and also Robert E. Lee. The Washington plaque is now being removed because some people are whining that they feel uncomfortable about it. Well, he was a slaveholder, and I, I don't think this is the welcoming thing. And the church is apparently giving in to these whiners. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I guess the church gets to decide to do whatever it wants to do. So this, as we frequently talk about on this program, isn't a question of do they have a right to do it. The answer is yes, they have a right to do it. But the question becomes, is this the right thing to do? And is it a reasonable response that someone would, again, walk into a church where George Washington worshipped and be so offended that they would never go back because there is a plaque recognizing where the first president of the United States sat and worshipped? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I tell you, this, this social justice, this politically correct, this perpetually offended direction this country is going on is just mind-boggling. And every time you think that we have just gone down some corner that we're never going to be, it, it can't get worse, it, it does. I think it is ridiculous that this church would make a decision to take away what really is an historical plaque recognizing the first president of the United States. And if, if you want to argue about, I think the thing with Robert E. Lee is ridiculous as well. But let's let's focus on, on here Washington. Because Washington was a slave owner, we cannot recognize the pew where he sat in this church and a plaque that has been there since 1870 now has to be removed because some people might be offended. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this what we need to do to be inclusive? Or at some point in time, shouldn't we just be drawing the line and saying, you know what, if you've got a problem with this, this is... This is your problem. Maybe you shouldn't be visiting Washington, D.C. in the first place because, you know, you know what Washington, D.C. was named after? Oh, yeah, it was the first president of the United States. That's 414-799-1620. Let's start with Kathy in Milwaukee. Kathy, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Um, This is just getting to be really silly. Taking the plaque off doesn't mean he didn't sit there. Yeah, you want. I mean, if people were so offended, should we should we just destroy the the pew? Hey, let, let's get rid of this. Let's just kind of pretend that he wasn't there because, um, yeah, it's still going to be an historical site. I, where does this end, Kathy? Where does it end? Well, and I, do they feel uncomfortable walking down the streets because slave owners also walk down the streets that they're walking down? I yes, yes, yes. And and what about the the currency? I mean, you know, George Washington, what, he's on the $1 bill. I mean, are we going to get rid of all that? I just, at some point in time, you just, you know, we, we really are, I understand the phrase, the inmates are running the asylum is controversial, but it, but it is. It's these, this small minority of people who are just looking for something to be offended about that are driving policy decisions that make, I think, the people making them look ridiculous. Absolutely. It's, it's something that we did that, nobody's going to do again we're not happy that people did it but it's just that happened then you know it's just well, 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 right no thanks i mean what thanks for call i mean okay so i mean here's I, i say this seriously is it time to 
okay, where is the Declaration of Independence? Freedom Hall in Philadelphia, right? Is it time to, all right, take the Declaration of Independence down because, you know, a lot of those people that signed it were slave owners? I mean, is that is that now, is this the new standard? Well, we, we can't recognize this because the founding fathers of this country, they were slave owners, and, and we, we can't acknowledge it. At, at, look, at, at what point in time do we need to recognize that, you know, we, we can't, we cannot fairly judge people by 2000, 2017 by our standards of what is acceptable based on, you know, what, what they did in, you know, 1776 or, or whatever. John in Waukesha. John, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yes, that was the point I was bringing up. The, that was probably a fairly wealthy parish, and they probably were all or most of them were slaveholders. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, we're judging today what was okay back then that was and obviously slavery was terrible but it was legal and perfectly legal the death penalty what are we supposed to do? maybe uh 25 30 years ago they outlawed a death penalty start punishing people that were for the death penalty right right it's it's where i mean right thanks it's, it's where do you draw the line and it's this overall attempt at at sanitizing history and i guess what, what really strikes me, and again, I, that's why I want, I want to take the Robert E. Lee thing out, out of the debate, okay, because I understand that, you know, that that's now the, this, but, but I mean, Robert E. Lee was a transformative historical figure in the history of this country. He worshipped at the, this church. So you, you take out a plaque recognizing that this incredible historical figure who had a huge impact on th- this country, I mean, you you would think that that would be something. It's this effort to sanitize history that drives me absolutely crazy. But it is, it's the larger point as well. I'm trying to imagine what a petty person w- would be that would go and they would say, okay, I'm never going to come back to this church because there is a plaque recognizing that George Washington worshipped here. I would actually think it would be a huge drawing point. Hey, we want to worship in the church. If you're a visitor to Alexander, if you're in D.C. and you're looking to, to worship at a church, I think that would be a huge drawing point. Hey, I, I want to go. I want to see if I can sit in the pew where Washington sat. I mean, I, I think that would be the reaction of most people. But again, you've got these politically correct, perpetually offended folks that are out there looking for something to be upset about um let's talk to let's see tony in milwaukee tony you're on 620 wtmj hello hi how are you doing today i'm frustrated (laughs) i'm frustrated (laughs) you know i am too as i was saying before um you know even with immigration and everything back in the day i was had a discussion with a lady i was working for she was black and you know, she was going through their history, and we were in this discussion, and she says, you know, if it, if it wasn't for slavery, you know, they w- you know, black people wouldn't have the opportunities that they have nowadays. You know, even, there, even though there was immigration and there was, you know, but a lot of people were brought over for slavery, and it's just a part of history. Mm-hmm. You know, people have to understand that. It's, it's, and, and it's a horrible part, and it's a it's a dark mark, um, you know, on, on this country's history. But at the same time, that now we're going to, you know, judge George Washington or, or Thomas Jefferson or, or some of the other, you know, founders of this country. We're going to judge them by what we clearly recognize to be acceptable standards in 2017. But they weren't living in 2017. They weren't living in 1917. You know, it, it's, you know, we're, we're going back hundreds of years and we're trying to say, okay, we're going to judge you now by those standards. And I just 
think that's wrong. Yeah, and you use the past. You use history as a stepping stone. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Thanks for the call. I mean, seriously, what under this theory, I mean, if the... Are we going to close the Museum of American History? Because if you go through the Smithsonian, you know, you're going to see a lot of displays and you're going to see a lot of exhibits and you're going to see tributes to the founding fathers. Are we going to just not close this down because, well, some of them were slave owners? And I think some people would say, yes, that's the way we want to go. We want to sanitize this history. We don't want to acknowledge that these were great men who had a vision and who shaped the country because, again, Back in 1776, there were, you know, slavery was still legal. It's an awful, it was an awful time. Nobody's going to endorse that, but we're going to judge people uh, in 2017 based on, you know, uh, in 2017 based on what they did in 1775. And for this church to do this, well, again, like I say, they have a right to do it. It's just, I think, not the right thing to do. It is 219. Hey, speaking of not the right thing to do, turns out that the one Major League Baseball national anthem protester, turns out he's not just a protester, he's also a liar and a thug. I'll tell you that story in just a minute. wonder what baseball is going to do to him, if anything. It's 220. This is Jeff Wagner. Stick around. It's 223, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Now that the House passed a budget last week, tax reform is squarely on the docket. How smooth a process will this be, and is reform still possible before the end of the calendar year? House Speaker Paul Ryan addresses that and more when he joins John and Melissa at 420 today during Wisconsin's Afternoon News. You want to be tuned in for that. All right. Um, Bruce Maxwell. Might not be familiar with name. Bruce Maxwell is a catcher for the Oakland A's. He is also, I believe, the only Major League Baseball player who chose to kneel during the National Anthem. I mean, this is a big football thing, but Bruce Maxwell chooses to kneel. Bruce Maxwell has now been exposed as a liar and a thug. All right, first of all, Bruce Mitchell, he was in the new Bruce Maxwell, he was in the news last week when this this story circulated because he he took to again social media to claim that he had been refused service. He's from Alabama and, and his story was that he'd been refused service. He went into this restaurant and that um once he was identified as the guy who um knelt during the national anthem that the waiter um, refused to serve him. He said that you know the waiter refused to serve him. Hey, you're the guy. You're the guy who took a knee. And then everything changed. Well, turns out that that's not true. It turns out that he just made made it up. Apparently, because the waiter is now speaking out. The waiter's saying this had nothing to do with kneeling. He came in with several of his friends. The waiter says we started carding people. You know, um, we carded people and. He got upset that we were carding people, asking them to show IDs. The uh, waiter, he's going public. He says he's a 42-year-old waiter. He says he's outright lying. It's really upsetting as he was given full service. I don't even know who he is. According to the waiter, Maxwell was dining there with a local Democratic councilman and another friend who produced an expired ID, and the server refused to serve a drink, which upset his friend who followed him into the kitchen. He asked me, don't you know who Bruce Maxwell is? And told me I was making everyone feel uncomfortable. 
The waiter says, look, I don't know anything about him or kneeling. All I know is a friend of mine lost his job for serving someone a drink who happened to be underage. So if anybody looks under 30, I card them. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. So this wasn't about the anthem at all, but this guy decided to lie about it to get attention. So that makes Bruce Maxwell a liar. Well, where does the thug come from? Well, he had a big week because in addition to pu- trying to push this phony story about how, oh, horrible things were happening to him because he protested the national anthem. He's apparently now been arrested on a gun charge. Now, the the incident in the restaurant happened in Alabama. He's now been charged. He allegedly uh, pointed, he's been arrested on a gun charge. He allegedly pointed a gun at a female food delivery person in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um Police said um, they had to go to his home on Saturday night after getting a call with about a person with a gun. He was booked on charges of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and disorderly conduct. Um, uh, apparently, what happened is the you know the delivery driver goes there and for whatever reason he decides to pull out a gun and point the gun at the delivery driver. So that's kind of a a big week here. You've got the guy who lies about being denied service because he was a national anthem protester and then he's halfway across the country and he ends up getting busted, getting busted for sticking the gun in the face of a delivery driver. Here's my question now. What is Major League Baseball going to do with this? I mean, seriously, what is Major League Baseball going to do with this? Is this the kind of guy that you really want representing this sport? Just asking. 227, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 235, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Um, we were talking earlier about the, the state Supreme Court election. That's uh, There's going to be a very clear choice. You've got two very liberal candidates running, and you've got a conservative candidate running. The liberal long knives are already out, you know, going after the conservative candidate. Typically, conservative candidates fare well in statewide elections for court positions. We'll see if that holds up. The other, you know, very, very interesting race before November is going to be the primary race between Kevin Nicholson, who is, um, well, one of the sort of a newcomer to Wisconsin politics and matter of fact he was he was on Steve Scafidi's show earlier this morning um Nicholson uh interesting background he was a Democrat in college um went on joined the and, and was actually very vocal about being a Democrat was active in a lot of Democratic activities um said he had a change of heart um, former Marine, he's a business guy, and you know he, he wants to challenge uh, Tammy Baldwin for the U.S. Senate position. That's fine. He the the major other major announced candidate is of course State Senator Leah Vukmir. Leah Vukmir, extremely well known to I, I think conservatives throughout this area. Leah Vukmir, it, the, anybody that challenges Leah Vukmir's credentials as a conservative is a fool. Now, I mean, again, I don't care who people vote for when it comes to Kevin Nicholson and Leah Vukmir. I I haven't made a decision as to whether I'm going to endorse a candidate. Typically, I don't endorse in Republican primaries. But but regardless, I mean, Leah Vukmir is a solid conservative who has been at the forefront 
of a lot of the things that have been happening in the conservative movement in Wisconsin over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, Leah Vukmir, staunch supporter of Act 10. Leah Vukmir has been a staunch supporter of property tax reform. Leah Vukmir, again, if there is a conservative issue around, Leah Vukmir has been a supporter of that conservative issue. So Steve Bannon, who, of course, is the, the conservative flamethrower who is out there trying to promote a Trump agenda. And in my opinion, um, the civil war that he is trying to pick has the potential, the potential to, again, relegate the Republican Party in this country to a minority party for for a decade. Because Bannon is one of these characters that's out there saying there's got to be this litmus test that's here. And, and even people who are supported by Donald Trump, if, if he doesn't think if Bannon decides that they're not enough of a Trump supporter, he's going to go after him. You, you saw this in the Alabama Senate primary. Jeff Sessions resigned his Senate seat to become the attorney general of, of the country. So President Trump appointed what I would describe as a extremely conservative but mainstream type of Republican to the office. Well, Steve Bannon decided, well, he, he's not enough of a Trump supporter. Well, Trump's, Trump you know, appointed him in the first place. So they ran in the Republican primary a guy named Roy Moore, who is a kook. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I hate to say this, but he's, he's a kook. I mean, he was he was twice forced off of the Alabama State Supreme Court. You, you, you talk to... I have talked to a couple members of the U.S. Senate who just roll their eyes at the idea that Roy Moore would join him. Okay, but but he was supported by Bannon. He beat Luther Strange in the primary. The general election is in early December. Now, don't get me wrong. I think at the end of the day, Moore probably wins because this is Alabama, where Republicans normally win 70 to 30. The last poll had that race deadlocked, 48-48. Moore might will probably very well win because I don't see a Democrat being able to win statewide in Alabama. But he's going to win with 51 or 52 percent of the vote. They're, they're going to lose a, a large number of people because the guy is a kook, but he's supported by Steve Bannon. You, you've seen this play out. Okay, Arizona, Senator Jeff Flake, who's never been a, a Trump guy, um, he's been you know under fire from President Trump and from Steve Bannon. The, the Bannon wing is supporting this this woman named Kelly Ward, who is, she's a kook. I I mean, I I could spend 20 minutes telling you why she's a kook, but she's a kook. The left has kooks. The right has kooks. And, you know, whenever I see this, I I just remember those last six years that Harry Reid was the the Democratic Speaker of of the Senate, of the leader of the Senate. The only reason he was there was because the Republicans nominated the one person in Nevada that couldn't beat Harry Reid, Sharon Angle. She was a kook. And and after the 2012 elections, I think the Republicans learned a lot about this. Well, now with the Civil War and these guys like Steve Bannon that were out there, they're nominating kooks that, okay, it's not going to probably cost them the Senate seat in Arizona, although who knows who's going to emerge to run. It's probably not going to cost them the seat in Alabama. But but you're nominating kooks who, you know, take races that they should win 70-30 and they win 51-49. So Steve Bannon is now deciding to play in Wisconsin politics, and they have endorsed Kevin Nicholson, who again is is running against Leah Vukmir. I don't know about Nick, enough about Nicholson to know, you know, wh- where he stands on different things. I mean, if, if you listen to him talk, he's got the talking points, and he sounds like it. He talks like a conservative, but but to the extent this implies 
that that State Senator Leah Vukmir is something other than a solid conservative. I, I, I'm not having any of that. In any event, um, I, together with a handful of other talk show hosts, um, we, we all did interviews with the National Journal, which is a publication that, that follows politics in Wisconsin, politics nationwide. And, um, you know, all of us are you know quoted giving our various opinions of this. And I am quoted warmly and, and accurately about about this whole issue, again, talking about how well, I, I don't have a position of endorsing. Um, if anybody is going to suggest that that Leah Vukmir is something other than what she is, which is a solid conservative, there's going to be a huge backlash. And, uh, you know, potentially, you know, in Wisconsin, you know, the endorsement by a guy like Steve Bannon is a recipe just for electoral disaster. So in any event, I just the, the story just came out and um if you follow me on twitter it's at jeff wagner 620 i've got a link to the story and typically it's behind a paywall but i think the way we've set it up is you'll be able to read the story if you are interested and again it quotes me and a number of other wisconsin uh talk show hosts i can't speak for anybody else but i i'm quoted warmly and fairly and accurately um and, and again i i just i want to see i, I what i am very concerned about is if you remember back in 2012 Tommy Thompson ended up being the Republican nominee. Um, Tommy Thompson came out of a very contested four-way Republican primary. But the problem was he spent all the money that he had and had raised in, in trying to get out of the primary. And the Thompson campaign w- was dark. Now, 2012 was a bad year for Republicans. Um, you know, that was that was where Barack Obama was running for re-election. I'm not sure any Republican could have won in Wisconsin that year in that statewide race. But but nevertheless, I, I think, and I continue to believe, Tommy had the best chance of winning. But what happened is he had to spend all his money in order to win the, the primary. And then the campaign was dark. It was, it was off the air for, it seemed like forever, but it was certainly at least a month. Tammy Baldwin, who ran unopposed, I think she was unopposed. It wasn't a contested primary. She weighed She weighed in, put in a ton of money, and was able to, I mean, take a lead with all the advertising that she, she never really surrendered on that. I guess part of my concern is I don't want to see that same thing happen again because Tammy Baldwin, who is one of the most liberal members of the U.S. Senate, um, on the one hand, you would think that, you know, given where Wisconsin is, she should be beatable. On the other hand, um, she's going to have a ton of special interest money behind her. And that's why if people want to have a chance of beating Tammy Baldwin, um, whoever comes out of that primary has to be in a position to, again, be on the air and not allow themselves to be defined like Tommy allowed himself to get defined because he didn't have resources back in 2012. So if you want to see the story again, um, it's in the National Journal, but I've got links to it um, if you follow me on Twitter at Jeff Wagner 620. It's 244. 247, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Improving your corporate culture is more than just putting up a pool table at the office. A lead executive at GMR Marketing shares her secrets to corporate culture with the folks at New Walkie in the latest Intersection of People and Place podcast. Up now on WTMJ Mobile. Be sure to check that out. Hey, while you're there, we, we've got our, our podcast page. You'll hear voices that you don't always hear on the radio. And in addition, um, we podcast all the shows. One of the questions I was getting is, 
Jeff, I, we used to download the podcast when you were doing the 830 to 12 shift. Now that you're back to noon to 3, yeah, it's still podcast, so you can check that out, and we get a lot of it. Okay, Gru, I've been putting you on the spot, producing the show today and always. Um, House of Cards. Are, are you a fan of House of Cards? You saw the first two seasons, haven't seen it since. Okay, well, let me let me kind of back into this, because there is, is breaking news. The original House of Cards was a, a, a British miniseries, it, and it, it ran for three years. I highly recommend it. I, I, I have them all on DVDs. Watch them. It's great. Netflix brought House of Cards based on, on the British miniseries, but they decided to bring it to the U.S., and it's been on Netflix for the last, I, I think, five years, I, I think. Um, I, I'm, I'm exactly like you. I, I watched the first two seasons of it and and it stars uh kevin spacey and robin wright and um hope my wife isn't listening but Ro- robin white is one fine looking woman you know no question you know i mean she uh, um you know, she's the um she plays his his wife she plays kevin spacey's wife and he started off as like a congressman and it's all about how he's worked his way up and um uh robin wright she was the um she was the in Princess Bride. She was the the gal in Princess Bride. So she, um, yes, she was Buttercup, right? Exactly. But anyways, so the the show, I think it kind of jumped the shark. I watched the first two years, and it sort of tracked the the British show. And then I thought it got weird. I, I watched three or four episodes of the third season, and I haven't watched it since. Now I understand some people are still into it, but that that happens. I mean, I think lots of times shows have a good idea, and then they kind of run out. Well, any of it. Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey is the the lead character in this, and he plays the politician who ends up getting to be president of the United States, and I don't know if he was president at the end of the last season or not. There was different stuff that happened. Well, anyhow, Kevin Spacey um, comes out last night, and of course, in in the whole Harvey Weinstein thing, Harvey Weinstein being the Hollywood producer, and it doesn't sound like there wasn't a woman in in Hollywood that he he didn't try to sexually assault. Well, now they're all coming out and telling stories. Well, what happened is over the weekend, a uh, a guy who I think at the time was fourteen comes out and says the story that you know he was working with Kevin Spacey when Kevin Spacey was twenty six, and Kevin Spacey tried to sexually assault him. So late last night, Kevin Spacey comes out and sa- acknowledges that yes, I did this, and by the way, I'm gay. So he, he put this all in this, this big kind of category. Spacey is getting appropriately ripped for linking his coming out of the closet, as it were, if we still use that phrase, with also acknowledging sexual assault. And he's being ripped by the, the gay community because the, the implication, by, by merging these two things together, yes, I tried to, yes, I, I, had in, I tried to have inappropriate contact with this minor, and by the way, I'm gay, you know, trying to kind of link the, these two. And a lot of people in the gay community are saying, okay, well, this is, this plays into every horrible stereotype that there is about, you know, somebody who might be gay, that they're also going to be the sexual predator. And so Kevin Spacey is justifiably, you know, being completely and totally ripped on this. He is the star of the Netflix show. Uh, New York Post has this breaking news. Um, Netflix um, apparently is going to end end uh, House of Cards. Here's the story. Let's see. As allegations of unwanted sexual advances in 1986 by Kevin Spacey against the then-teenage Anthony Rapp have emerged, Netflix today decided to pull the plug on House of Cards after the upcoming sixth season. So 
there kind of announcing that um that <clears throat> this is it i don't know when i don't know when the uh season drops let's see um apparently that the show is in production in maryland on its sixth season season um it's been a career defining and critically play role for spacey he was emmy emmy received an emmy nomination for the role in the house of cards if you think that uh if you think there's going to be any more Emmy nominations, Kevin Spacey, I will predict this, in the upcoming sixth season, Kevin Spacey can give the greatest acting performance ever. He ain't going to be nominated for an Emmy. I can pretty much guarantee you um, about that. So anyhow, Netflix is saying that, okay, this last one, th- this current season that they're finishing, that's going to be it. And uh, it's not about ratings. It's about uh, just saying no to Kevin Spacey, who, like I say, is coming appropriately under a ton of criticism, not, again, because of the fact that he's come out as being gay, but because of the fact that he's acknowledged trying to sexually assault a 14-year-old boy. And then, of course, that's horrible enough, and then compounding it by saying, oh, and by the way, this is what my sexual orientation is. So um, House of Cards, which I think, again, was was pretty good for the first two years, and after that kind of jumped to shock. If, if you want to... If you want to, if you really liked House of Cards, my recommendation is again, go back to the uh, BBC miniseries, which was really, really good. I think that's uh, in 1990. But uh, another, another card dropping, another domino falling. If we want to use cliches, um, as a result of the Harvey Weinstein scandal, as more and more people come out and, gee, surprise follows surprise. Powerful people in Hollywood were using their power and their influence to try to, I, I don't know, have sex with less powerful people. Gee, what a surprise that is. Um, it's interesting to me, the whole Harvey Weinstein thing. The biggest surprise is simply that um, this was just such a known a known thing, and nobody nobody in the press decided that they were willing to you know upset the apple cart by trying to push for some of these stories. All right, it is two fifty four. We'll be back with more, and we'll turn it over to John McCure. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ.